0: Have you ever noticed that podcasts are a little like sharks, when they stop swimming, they die, and they can both smell blood from a mile away. So in the spirit of keeping swimming, I'd like to introduce you to TOS+. Plus. Putting my business pants on for a second, TOS+, Plus is our new premium membership thingamajig. It's the all-access pass to a growing library of exclusive horror, sci-fi, and WTF audio fiction, along with access to the regular TOS Weekly Stories in higher quality, a week early, and ad-free. Once again, that's exclusive episodes, ad-free, a week early, and higher quality audio. You'll also get access to the brand new TOS Plus Vault, where you can grab our ebooks, comics, and desktop wallpapers, and all sorts of stuff. All of this is available today via our Patreon campaign, which includes juicy extras like Discord access, audiobooks, and merch, and if you're an Apple user, you can subscribe directly via the Apple Podcasts app. We're now in our eighth year of the podcast and we've got so many cool projects on the boil, none of which would be possible without the ongoing support of our listeners, specifically our premium subscribers, our super-powered patrons, and the many multi-dimensional voodoo priests air guitaring to the TOS intro jingle. For more, head over to theotherstories.net forward slash plus. Once again, that's theotherstories.net forward slash plus. Prepare for a scare. It's the Midnight Macabre Podcast.
2: heinous Hellions and welcome to the first in a series of special live episodes of Midnight Macabre to celebrate the most wonderful time of the year that is of course Halloween. I as always am Laura Lampton, your guide to all things horrifying from silver screen slashers to those terrors that just might really be out there waiting to get you. I'm going to be coming to you live every night this week from Old Mill Lane in Bramshire, a firm contender for the UK's most forsaken street, with a grim history of dark deeds, disappearances and at least one decapitation. Some of you may be disappointed to hear that, as yet, the walls of my Airbnb in what was once the Old Mill itself didn't start bleeding as I checked in. Never fear, though, there's still plenty of time for us to get the old place's juices flowing as we revisit some of its past misdeeds each and every night this week. I'm here thanks to the support and passionate, some would say obsessive, requests of my supporters, with a special shout-out to Kate and Tom, Victor Kay, and Harry Harper for your extremely generous donations. For our opening gambit into the sinister past of this now reasonably priced feature accommodation, we're going to the earliest, most gruesome entry in Old Mill Lane's history, our researcher team, by which I mean yours truly, could find. In 1689, a young woman named Marguerite Lusso, fleeing her own troubles in France, arrived in Bramshire and took up her position at this very mill. Sadly, Marguerite's problems were far from over. Adapted from original diary entries and oral histories passed down from local families by Ben Errington and performed tonight by Jasmine Arch, I give you... The Iron Spider of Old Mill Lane. In the late autumn of
3: 1689, Marguerite Lesault left the shores of Calais on a boat, watching as France, the country she'd called home for all of her seventeen years, disappeared into the fog. There was nothing left for her there. Her father, a naval officer, had been killed at war, and her mother taken slowly by an infection. With her younger siblings, Amélie and Pierre, in tow, she knew that she could prosper in England, as dozens of families from her village had made the journey across the water. Marguerite was useful with her hands, She could sew and stitch, she was polite and efficient, and she spoke good English. She knew there would be work for her, and that she could make a decent life for herself along with her sister and brother. Perhaps she could find a husband too. It was almost a week's ride to the north of England and the destination of Chesterstone, a small town in the county of Bramshire. By the time the three of them arrived, the cart they'd been travelling and sleeping in with two other French families was falling apart, and the driver was too drunk to even ask for payment. Marguerite was quick to find both employment and accommodation, the local public house full of interesting folk who were keen to take immigrant workers on at their factories in neighbouring towns. A well-to-do middle-aged man with finely pressed clothes and a tall hat was telling even taller tales about the grain mill where he needed leather workers, blade makers and sack makers. He had a strong jaw and kind eyes and seemed to take a liking to Marguerite immediately. His name was Thomas McGulliver and he was a proprietor of several businesses but the grain works on Old Mill Lane was the best place to work in all of Bramshire, according to him. He offered Marguerite a weekly wage and living quarters that were merely a stone's throw away from the mill. There wasn't much room, and there were a lot of others living there, but it was warm, and there was a bed for Marguerite and even one for Amélie and Pierre. McGulliver called the children, Your strapping son and beautiful daughter, and Marguerite didn't find means to correct him. Mr. McGulliver took Marguerite and her siblings, along with three other young women who had taken up Thomas on his offer in a carriage towards Old Mill Lane. The short jaunt was a bumpy ride, but in that time, one of the passengers and soon-to-be fellow worker, a grubby and tired-looking girl named Dorothy, spoke in an accent that Marguerite found difficult to understand, talking of Yorkshire and an abusive father and a farm where all of the livestock had died. In the living quarters, an old warehouse that had been converted into rooms with small bunks and oil lamps, but nothing else. Amélie was asleep the second her head was laid upon the pillow, and Pierre soon after. Marguerite bid farewell to Mr. McGulliver and watched him make his way to the top of a hillock where the bulky silhouette of the grain mill stood imposingly against the murky sky, the moon no more than a greasy smear between the clouds. Dorothy continued to talk and Marguerite nodded courteously as she watched the girl light and smoke a pipe, something Marguerite had only ever seen her father do. An hour passed, and Dorothy took her leave. Marguerite was alone for the first time in nearly a week, and as she realized this, she began to sob. But they were not tears of sadness, not at all. There were tears of relief. It was still dark when she awoke the next morning, and the children would not stir to eat. Along with the other workers, she made her way to the top of the hillock and into the mill, the procession splitting in two at a fork in the road, men going one way and women the other. The work at the mill was menial but arduous, and Marguerite developed blisters on both her hands and feet within the first week. She sewed sacks, and made rope, and cleaned floors, and carried water in wooden pails. Marguerite and Dorothy grew closer as the weeks went by, the latter's sense of humour occasionally drawing scorn from their superiors, especially the men. She would sing and tell stories that often had a sexual undertone, something that the older women would warn her against. When Mr. McGulliver roamed the mill floor one day, inspecting the cleanliness of workstations and asking about accidents and rat sightings, Dorothy made a joke that suggested the landowner looked tired because he had been up all night indulging in lusts of the flesh. A lot of the workers laughed, but Marguerite managed to hold her tongue as she saw the kindness vanish from Mr. McGulliver's eyes in an instant. Only a few days later, Dorothy fell ill. Marguerite suggested that she may be carrying a child, for it was obvious to everybody that she'd been frolicking with one of the labourers. Dorothy confirmed this between wretches although she was adamant that she was not with child, claiming the labourer had not managed to finish as he was just as sloshed as she was. The next day, Dorothy was nowhere to be found. Marguerite endeavoured with limited success to complete her friend's quota of labour. Luckily, McGulliver wasn't around, and her absence seemed to go mostly unnoticed, save for a few modes of whispered gossip. Arriving back at the warehouse that evening, Marguerite tried to find Dorothy, to check if she'd been taken to a doctor, or was recovering in bed, only to find her bunk occupied by a family that Marguerite hadn't seen before. Growing increasingly worried, she set to seeking out the labourer Dorothy had been dallying with, a boy no older than she was. Finding him at the public house, he claimed that he hadn't seen her, swearing ignorance between slugs of beer. Concerned, Marguerite asked some of the women Dorothy spoke to regularly but none of them seemed keen to talk to a French immigrant girl. She noticed that this reluctance to assist in confirming Dorothy's whereabouts was very strange and the failure to even acknowledge the girl's existence by some of the workers was even stranger. Amélie awoke screaming in the night, telling of a nightmare where a man in a tall hat had been sat at the end of her bed. The girl told her older sister as she soothed her, that she hadn't been able to move no matter how hard she tried. In one instance, the man from the Nightmare had looked just like Mr. McGulliver, but in another, they looked like a vagrant hag with sagging skin and blackened gums. Amélie said their eyes glowed like stars, and she heard the whispers of a dozen voices in her mind. She thought it was a spell to keep her still. She cried and cried, and eventually drifted back into slumber as Marguerite held her close. A week went by, and Dorothy still didn't return. Marguerite noticed that a couple of the other girls who began working at the mill around the same time also seemed to have disappeared. She was accused of being hysterical by an older woman who the French girl hadn't even heard speak before. Another worker told her that people came and went from the mill all the time, that young folk would move on without a word, and Mr. McGulliver would have to hire more hands on a weekly basis. Marguerite still wasn't convinced, and decided to take her grievances higher. That night, she waited until dark and made her way from the warehouse to the mill and behind the building towards the only outhouse she could see with candlelight in a window. Mr. McGulliver's carriage was outside, and not in the usual adjoining carriage house, as Marguerite began to approach, ready to apologize for intruding and making an effort not to give the man a fright. As she got closer, she saw a shadow frantically moving around on the wall, limbs flailing as somebody daubed the interior of the building with what looked like a dark paint. There were words and symbols, but nothing that Marguerite could make out. She crept behind a shrub and peered into the outhouse to see Mr. McGulliver in a state of undress as he smeared the walls, wheezing and gasping as he moved. The flickering flame of the candle made Mr. McGulliver's shadow appear as a dancing gargoyle on the wall and Marguerite even thought for a second that she saw a woman watching from the gloomy corner of the room. Her heart hoped it was Dorothy, but immediately she knew it was a trick of the light. She saw feathers and flesh on the ground round McGulliver's bare feet, the bodies of dead chickens strewn around. As a proprietor absentmindedly stomped, Marguerite could hear the wet slap of meat between his toes. All of a sudden, he stopped moving. He was talking to himself, or to somebody, and as Marguerite stood up from behind the shrub, he turned to look directly at her. He shrieked like a bat, and a terrified Marguerite ran back towards the warehouse. She didn't want to have to wake Amélie or Pierre in a panic, but something was telling her to leave Old Mill Lane at once. To leave Bramshire altogether. To get back on that boat and go home to France, and never return. Implausibly... A fully-dressed Mr. McGulliver managed to arrive at the warehouse ahead of her with two hulking subordinates at his side. The three of them held flaming torches, illuminating Marguerite as she approached. Raising a pointed finger, McGulliver bellowed as if to intimidate anybody in the living quarters who might want to intervene. I accuse Marguerite Lusso of witchcraft. The foreigner has put an atrocious curse on my grain mill and murdered an unknown number of young women. "'I cast doubt that our siblings are related to her at all.' <gasps> "'Me?' Marguerite retorted. "'I am not the guilty party. You are the killer here, McGulliver.' The man spat on the ground. Marguerite continued to plead her innocence, but she was dragged by her hair back up towards the top of the hillock and a different outhouse behind a barn. She called out for help as she was thrown inside, McGulliver closing the door behind them as she dropped to her knees outside a circle of arranged stones.' Wooden beams had charred lengths of rope hanging from them, and a fire crackled in the centre of the room. There was a stout man with his back to her, turning something with a tool in the flames. The subordinates grabbed Marguerite's arms and hauled her to her feet. McGulliver moved inside the stone circle, and he spoke softly, his lips barely moving. They parted only enough to allow his words to slip out like a fanged snake. The iron spider has assisted me for many years, Marguerite. She struggled, trying to free herself from the grasp of the men. For my forefathers, it was a way of inflicting punishment on those who had done them wrong. Liars, thieves, adulterers, those who made a nuisance of themselves. Marguerite kicked out and both of her captors stood on her toes to keep her in place. Do you think that I'd let such accusations directed at a man of my stature go without repercussion? "'A killer? Me? "'You are incredibly naive, my girl.' He watched the item the rotund man was heating, an orange glow igniting his eyes as it was spun over the fire. Marguerite could see some of it, the clawed legs of an iron-wrought spider blushing as it grew hot. "'The iron spider only has four claws.' But I assure you that it's perfectly adequate at causing unexplainable pain and anguish. For a woman, one as young and buxom as you, more than most. McGulliver stepped closer to her and held out a soiled palm. He began to massage her bosom in a way that somebody who'd never been intimate with a woman would. He treated her body with discontent, as if he hated it. Where's Dorothy? Marguerite yelled She was trying to hold her tears back but it was becoming impossible She didn't want the man who'd once seemed so kind to see her so scared Who? McGulliver mocked Marguerite's legs went limp She slipped backwards into the men's arms and they yanked her back to a standing position She watched with glazed eyes as McGulliver and the rotund man mounted the red-hot device, no bigger than a pair of reaching hands, on an iron bracket that was fixed to the wall. She was dragged towards the iron spider and whimpered as McGulliver tore her blouse, stays and chemise from her torso. The men lifted her at the armpits as the rotund man gripped the legs of the spider with a pair of metal tongs, bending them into place. She heard a terrible hiss as the claws seared into her flesh, burning and ripping as they pierced the skin of her breasts. The pain was agonizing and Marguerite bit into her tongue, cursing and crying. She could smell the fat of her breasts as it cooked, the skin blackening and splitting like roasted meat. McGulliver stepped back and watched with glee as she was torn away from the wall, bloody drags of her flesh being held onto by the greedy spider as it consumed the gore of what had once been her body. They let go of her and she fell in a heap on the ground, covering her mutilated chest with shaking hands. She wept as McGulliver tried to get a good look at the disfigurement, dismissing his assistance. As they left the outhouse, the fire began to rage. McGulliver knelt down beside her. That is what happens to witches on Old Mill Lane. I am doing Bramshire a great service by ridding it of yours. Marguerite looked up at him and saw what Amélie had seen in her nightmare. Mr. McGulliver didn't look like himself at all. He looked like a vagrant hag with greasy black hair that glistened like leeches and bloated pale skin that was flecked with sunspots. Her teeth were yellowing pegs and both of her eyes were dead, one white and one grey. The hag pulled Marguerite's hands away from her bloodied breasts and touched the wounds with prodding, impossibly long fingers. Marguerite gasped, the pain exploding around her injury like a lit powder keg. The witch, for that's all Marguerite could think to name her, scuttled backwards like an insect and brought her blood-stained hands to her cracked lips as a forked tongue flicked out to taste. Then she appeared as McGulliver again. A dozen whispers danced around inside Marguerite's head, fighting to make themselves heard. The man is of no use to us anymore. He has served his purpose. She is our new vessel. McGulliver savoured Marguerite's blood. His eyes looked kind again. Delicious, he said. You'll do.
2: Well, there's one type of spider nobody could criticise you for not wanting in the house. I'll leave you with a bonus bit of history for the evening. The old phrase, curiosity killed the cat, wasn't quite the same in Marguerite's day. Back when the saying first appeared in the late 1500s, it was spoken as care killed the cat and was a warning of being too concerned with the troubles of other people sounds to me like poor Marguerite might have done well to pay attention to either of those meanings. This entire week of live specials, in place of my originally planned drunk commentaries on horror classics, is brought to you by Kane and Braithwaite Media and tirelessly supported by my very own Army of the Damned, that is my Patreon subscribers. You can catch me on the Hellscape, that is Twitter, on at pod. Follow me there anytime you need a boost of unsettling content to keep you awake into the small hours. But try not to peek too soon. I'll be back with another Halloween horror from Old Mill Lane at the same time tomorrow. Until then, sleep tight, my morbid minions.
0: The Halloween Horrors of Old Mill Lane is produced by Hawk and Cleaver and stars Emily Booth, edited by Carl Hughes and directed by me, Andy Conduit-Turner. Tonight's episode, The Iron Spider of Old Mill Lane, was written by Ben Errington and performed by Jasmine Arch. Music by Sergei Cherimizanov and sound effects from freesound.org and zapsplat.com. All episodes of the series are produced under a Creative Commons license, which of course means don't sell it, don't edit it, but you can share it as much as you damn well please. Join us again next time.
1: Hello, my name is Alex Markley, and I'm inviting you to
2: check out my new podcast. It's a surreal sci-fi comedy series called The
1: Unlikely Adventures of an Improbable Family. It's about a forlorn shell of a man, his egotistical laptop, a cartoon alien fuzzball, and a mysterious woman
2: with telepathic abilities. You can find The Unlikely Adventures on the web at unlikely.show or wherever you find your podcasts. Give it a listen and let me know what you think. And thanks!